The following sermon is by our senior pastor, Grant Castleberry of Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 9 o'clock a.m. every Sunday morning. If you have any questions, please email us at info at capitalcommunitychurch.com. We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. I invite you to open your Bibles with me to John chapter 5. We're getting back into the Gospel of John. We started the Gospel of John over two years ago, basically. We started a long time ago. We took a pause in COVID, and now we're, we've been back in John for uh, a few months, and we are looking at this really important chapter in John chapter 5. Many scholars think that this is the clearest and most definitive defense that Jesus gives of his deity here in the temple at this unnamed feast. If you'll direct your attention to verse 25, I'm going to read verses 25 and 26 of John chapter 5. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. This is the Word of God. Brief prayer. Father, what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, and what we are not make us. For your glory and your honor. Amen. I used to think when I read these verses that Jesus was talking about the future resurrection. He was talking about an event way off in the future because if you look at verses 27 and 28, he, he talks about the, the future resurrection and the future judgment. He says, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, talking about the future resurrection of the dead. But notice that Jesus says there that an hour is coming in verse 28. Uh, Underline that phrase, the hour is coming. That word hour, when it's used in the Bible, doesn't refer specifically to a specific hour. It's referring to a, a very purposeful period of time. But notice in verse 25 what Jesus says. He doesn't just say that the hour is coming. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and what? And is now here. He's not talking about the future resurrection. He's talking about something that takes place in the here and now. And notice those two words at the very beginning, amen, amen, truly, truly. Whenever Jesus says that, that's a rhetorical marker. He's saying, pay very special and close attention to what I am saying because this is very, very important that you understand. That's what he's saying. So it's very, very important that you understand that there is something taking place in this hour right now that's for you and for your life. What is it? Well, Jesus says this hour is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear 
will live. He's talking about life in the present. He's talking about real, authentic, spiritual life. Jesus came not just to give us eternal life in the future, which He does, but He came to give us eternal life now. You see, eternal life is a present reality that you come to grasp in the here and now through faith in Christ. Jesus says in John 10.10, He says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. He's not just talking about in the future. He's talking about your current life, that you would have this abundant life. And that's really what Christianity is all about. That's what's so different about Christianity and other religions. Other religions, it's an external, I'm going through the motions, I'm posturing myself, I'm trying to to climb up on the ladder, if you will. But Christianity is about a life, a transformation that takes place. It's not merely just a set of beliefs. It's not merely uh, outward religion. It's not merely an ethic, although it is those things. It's a spiritual life. And this is what everyone is looking for. Because Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 3 that God has put eternity in our hearts. Everybody is looking for this spiritual life and doing everything that they can to try and find it. I watched a documentary called The Alpinist. Has anybody seen that documentary, a few of y'all? It's about this climber, uh, Marc-Andre Leclerc. And he basically climbs these crazy mountain faces, just straight up uh, solo without rope. Uh, just, Just unbelievable climbs. And as they're interviewing him, they're asking him, you know, why are you subjecting yourself to this? Like, why are you putting your life in such peril? And he, and he says, because when I'm doing it, I never feel more alive. I never feel more alive when I'm that close to death. And then when I get off the mountain, there's this experience for weeks and months that because he was so close to death, everything seems more special and, and life becomes more vivid to him. He's searching for life. That's what everybody's searching for. And Jesus says, listen, in me right now, you can have this life and have it abundantly. Let me give you the context of these words very briefly. If you remember John chapter 5, Jesus goes down to Jerusalem from Galilee to an unnamed feast. And probably he goes into the temple and he hears the Pharisees and the scribes teaching people about the Sabbath. And the Pharisees had all these ridiculous rules about the Sabbath. You literally couldn't carry something bigger than a fig. And Jesus, I think, gets hacked off. And he says, I'm going to pick a fight with these guys. And the pool of Bethesda was right outside the gate, the the north gate of the temple. And he walks out, goes outside the gate, and goes into the pool of Bethesda, and all these men are, and, and women are waiting by the pool, trying to be healed, and he goes up to a man, and he says, take up your pallet and walk. Man who'd been lame for 38 years. Notice Jesus doesn't ask him to get in the pool. He says, no, you walk right now. Jesus, and, and these miracles are what John calls signs. They point to something about Jesus. This sign points to the fact that Jesus gives life that Jesus has the power to give life. 
Jesus goes back into the temple, and basically a fight happens. The, the confrontation happens. And the Pharisees and scribes come to Jesus, and many of the Jews, and there are probably, I think, thousands of people gathering around and listening to this confrontation. And they're saying, why did you heal this man on the Sabbath? Uh, he broke the Mishnah, their oral tradition. He didn't break the Old Testament law, by the way. Jesus could have gotten in a, into a debate with them about that. And, and he had every right to, but he doesn't do that. Notice what he does. Look at verse 17. Go back and look at verse 17. Jesus answered them, and he says, My father is working until now, and I am working. Here's what he's saying. The, the Old Testament rabbis, in their theology, taught, yes, God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh day, but that was a symbolic rest in that God actually always works. Even on the Sabbath day, God is upholding the universe. God is constantly working. This was the theology of the rabbis at the time. This is what they taught. It, it was true. God is always working. And, and Jesus, in saying this, he, he, he's going for the juggler. He says, my father is working until now, and I am working. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm God, just like my father. That's what he's saying. Look at verse 18. The Jews understood exactly what he meant by this. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was what? He was even, even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Wow. So now, they're trying to kill him. And there's a mob, and they're surrounding him. And Jesus gives the most glorious defense of his deity I think that you'll find in the entire Bible, right here in John chapter 5. When Jesus is before Pontius Pilate and Pilate's asking him, are you God? Are you the one, the Messiah? Do you remember Jesus is silent then? And his silence is a judgment, but here he speaks and he gives his defense. This is Jesus in the dock. He is giving his defense for his deity. And if you look at the rest of the chapter, it is Jesus in the temple lining, uh, line by line, the defense that he is truly the Son of God. So he's going to make six divine statements from verses 19 to 24. He's going to say in verse 19 that he is the divine will, just like the Father. In verse 20, that he shares a divine communion with the Father. In verse 20 as well, he's going to say, I do divine works, miracles. Then in verse 21 and 22, he's going to talk about his divine life and divine judgment. Those are important because, I'll, I'll explain that in a minute, he's going to come back to those. And then six, in verse 23, he's going to talk about his divine honor. Okay, so that's the, those are the six basic distinctions he gives of his deity. And then in verses 30, uh, all the way to um, 39, Jesus is going to talk about four witnesses. 
Four witnesses. Remember, uh, in, in the Old Testament, you couldn't accuse somebody on the basis of one witness. You couldn't prove anything on the basis of one witness. You, wit, one witness. You have to have multiple witnesses. Jesus is going to give four witnesses, and then he's going to pull the carpet on the Pharisees and charge them at the end of the chapter. So what's verses 25 through 29? What are they doing here? These verses are a parenthesis in the argument. It, it, it's, a, uh, it's an elaboration. It's, it's expounding on two of the things that he previously mentioned. He's talking about, in verses 25 through 26, he's going to go back and highlight what he picked up in verse 21. Verse 21, he says, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. He's going to elaborate on that. He's going to say, let me unpack that a little bit more, that I have the authority and the power to give life in this glorious doctrine called the first resurrection. And then in verses 27 to 29, he's going to talk about that he is the authority to execute divine judgment. So this is a parenthesis in the argument. It's an elaboration. And what we're going to do over the next few weeks is we're just going to look at this parenthesis. We're just going to look, uh, we're going to take these one at a time, the fact that Jesus elaborates on this fact that he gives divine life and then that he has divine judgment. So this morning what I want to do is give you four principles on this first resurrection, on this divine life that Jesus gives. Four principles, okay? The first is this, the spiritually dead. The first principle of the first resurrection is the spiritually dead. Look at verse 25. Jesus says, truly, truly, when the dead, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Remember, he's talking about something that's a present reality. He's not talking about a future reality. The hour is now here. He's talking about people that are not physically dead in the tombs. He's talking about people that are spiritually dead. Did you get that? He's talking about the walking dead, physically alive, but spiritually dead. In the story of the prodigal son, Jesus, through the Father, describes the prodigal son in the, in the exact same way in Luke 15. Uh, the Father tells, tells the other older brother, he says, for your brother was dead and is now alive. Paul says in Ephesians 2.1, talking to the Ephesians who are now Christians, he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Isaiah says in Isaiah 59, 10, he says, talking about our sinful state, he says, we grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. And this is because, theologically speaking, if you know the history of the Bible, What's the very first event that happens in Scripture? All the way back in Genesis. Adam and Eve sinned. What's the wage of sin, Paul says in Romans 6? Death. God told Adam and Eve, this is Genesis chapter 2, 17, he says, the day that you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. 
in the day that they ate of the fruit, they died spiritually. And because they were our first parents, what happened is, is they plunged all of humanity, all of us who come after them, into the penalty of their sin. We're plunged into that same death. This is a reality that we each and every one of us face. This morning, I'm teaching the students right after this, and we're studying the Shorter Catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Today's study is on question 19. All right, students, this is what's coming down the pipe. Question 19, it, it asks, what is the misery of that estate wherein two men fell? Answer, all mankind, by their fall, lost communion with God, are under His wrath and curse, and so made liable to all the miseries in this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. So we've been plunged into this death, this spiritual death. And it doesn't matter, listen very carefully, it doesn't matter who your parents are. It doesn't matter if you were born into a Baptist household, Methodist household, Catholic, Presbyterian, Muslim, doesn't matter. You were born spiritually dead. And unless the Lord makes you alive, you are spiritually dead. And this is why George Whitfield rode up and down this country, going into the churches. He'd walk into the churches and offend people and say, you must be born again. Don't tell us that. You're telling us that there's something wrong with us. Yeah, there is. You're dead. You have to be born again. What are the effects of this dead life? Many. Let me give you several. One, we do not understand spiritual things. We do not understand spiritual things. Paul says this in Ephesians 4.18. He says, they are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Man doesn't naturally understand the things of God. And man suppresses his conscience and goes deeper and deeper and deeper into a life of spiritual deadness in an upside-down mind. Just look at uh, the swim competition yesterday. What did you have in the swim competition yesterday? A man pretending to be a woman competing against other women. And no one says anything about it in the media. What's going on? Darkened mind. Hardness of heart. Look at how abortion is legalized in this country and staunchly defended. What's going on? A darkened mind. Secondly, we are also slaves to our flesh. This is one of the results of being dead. This is so important. Listen, because most of us have a secularist understanding of free will. Most of us believe that at any point, you can make any decision you want for good or for bad. And that, that's, that's a carryover from the secular air we breathe. Because secularists teach that our will is completely free. Now, 
the Bible says that you're a moral agent, that you're responsible for your actions, but it doesn't teach that you have free will. The Bible says that your will is enslaved to your sin, that you desire to do what your heart tells you to do, that you're in bondage to your sin. Don't believe me? Just go to Austin, Texas for the weekend. You'll see it. Paul says this, Ephesians 5.3. He says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So your desires, here's the thing, you do what you desire to do. Your will does what you desire to do. But, but what's going on with your desires? Your desires are enslaved. Your desires are enslaved to the flesh. And you're naturally children of wrath, Paul says. And that's why Paul says in Romans 3.11, this is so startling. He says, no one understands and no one seeks for God. Really? Yeah. No one. No one understands. And no one left to themselves seeks after God. Wow. Moreover, we also produce evil fruit. And that's Galatians 5.19. Paul says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So we produce this evil fruit. Isn't that list striking? It sounds just like our news today. This is 2,000 years ago. Man hasn't changed in 2,000 years. We're still producing the same bad fruit that we were 2,000 years ago. So here's the insidious nature of this deadness. One of the results of being spiritually dead is that you don't realize that you're spiritually dead. Because if you're dead, you're dead, right? And what this means for evangelism is that we can't manipulate the results we can't manipulate people and pull, pull people's arms to get into the kingdom of God. There was a, an evangelist in America named Charles Finney. Has anybody ever heard of Charles Finney? Charles Finney thought that he could come up with some steps. And he said, look, I'm going to develop these steps, and I'm going to give them to all the evangelists. And if you do these steps, you can argue people. He was a lawyer. He was a, he was a good debater. He was a great orator. He thought that you could... You could reason with people and argue them into the kingdom of God. Guess what? Didn't work. He would go preach in a town. People would get saved, walk an aisle. And then a month later, people would follow up and go into the town. And guess what? The majority of the people were going back to their old sinful lives. Mark Twain even talks about it. Rick Warren pastor out in California, says this. He says, if I can find the key to a man's heart, I can persuade him to believe. Really? No, you can't. You can't, you can't twist somebody's arm into the kingdom of God. Why? 
they're dead. You see what I'm saying? You see what Jesus is saying? None of those things work. And that's why God took the prophet Ezekiel. Do you remember where God took Ezekiel? He took him to a valley of dry bones. And he says, make these bones live. How do you you make these bones live? He spoke the voice of God. And then those bones begin to develop flesh and muscle and tendons and skin. I heard about a thing that Erwin Lutzer did. Anybody know Erwin Lutzer? He pastored the Moody Church in Chicago. He took a bunch of his preaching students to a graveyard in Chicago, and he, and he unleashed them in the graveyard, and he said, I want you to go preach to the graves. I said, what do you mean? He said, yeah, go preach to the graves. They all went out, and they started preaching, and then they came back, and he said, what do you think? I said, well, man, we're preaching to, we're preaching to dead people. You know what he said? Exactly. Because you don't have the power to give them spiritual life, even if you could. What's the only thing that has the power to give anybody spiritual life? Well, it's right here. Look what Jesus says. This is the second principle. The voice of the Son of God, the voice of our Lord. Look, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Jesus is saying, look, this isn't a metaphor here, okay? Don't don't over-theologize this. This is reality, that the life comes through the voice of the Son of God. That's it. The life comes through the Word of God. That's the power. That's where the life comes from, Jesus says. You remember, uh, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. What's the sound of amazing grace? It's the Word of God. It's the voice of God. Look at verse 24, just just the, the verse right up above. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, listen carefully, this is important, whoever hears my word, my word, and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. It is the word of God, period, that brings life. John Wesley uh, came to America and pastored a church down in Savannah. You can go down there and, and, and see where it was. There's a big statue down in one of the, the gardens down there of, of Wesley. But Wesley wasn't even converted while he was pastoring the church. He went back to England, and while he was on the boat, they were, there was a storm. And he saw these Moravians worshiping God and, and, and just confident on the boat in the midst of the storm. And, and he realized, he said, I don't have the same confidence. They have this life, and I'm dead. The boat lands, and he makes his way to Aldersgate Street. And there in a meeting, somebody was reading Martin Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. And he said, I felt my heart as I heard the word of God strangely warmed. 
God gives life through his word. I heard a story of R.C. Sproul. He, he was about to go out in college one night with a group of friends and got down to the lobby of his dorm, and there, there were some upperclassmen down there, and they said, hey, come join us for a Bible study. Come sit down. And so he felt like he, he had to, and they were studying the book of Ecclesiastes. And he said, we read Ecclesiastes 11.3, which says, if a tree falls to the south or to the north in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. And he said, I realized in that moment that my life was like that tree, dead, lying on the ground. But it was that word of God that opened his eyes, his heart, went back upstairs to his room, prayed, and received Christ. Augustine lived a life of sin, sexual immorality, uh, pagan religions, running from God. But God, the hound of heaven, tracked him down, convicted him of sin, and one day he was sitting in a garden just thinking about the misery of his life, and he heard a little child reading, again, from the book of Romans. Romans 13, 13, the child said, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, things he struggled with, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh to gratify its desires. He heard those words, and his heart went from darkness to noonday. Life. Life always and only comes through the Word of God. That's the second principle. Third principle is the new life itself. The new life itself. As a result of the supernatural voice of God, new life is given. And this is what Christianity is all about. It's about this new life in Christ. Hear me very carefully. It's new. It's new. I was talking to a server at a restaurant this week and invited him to church, and he just said, yeah, I think at some point, you know, my girlfriend and I, we want to, we want to, religion would be good for us. Religion would be helpful for, for where we're going. You know, at some point when the time comes, we'll add that on, maybe when we get married and become parents or something. You see, that's not the way Christianity works. Christianity isn't an add-on. It's not a, a three-day seminar you go to to get some self-improvement. Christianity is a new life, right? Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In this life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's a new life. And guess whose life it is? It's Christ's life. It's not your life to live however you please. It's Christ-infused life in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Wow. And it's given to you freely as a gift. I mean, this is, this is the most remarkable thing I find in the New Testament. Man, this new life that you can be transformed. The old you is gone. And you're given a new opportunity, a second chance. 
Paul says Colossians 2.13, And you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, flesh, God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Romans 6.4, Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life, this life of Christ that we now live. Spectacular. Martin Lloyd-Jones, let me give you a quote. He says, the Christian is not merely a man who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course he believes in him, but that is not the most important thing to say about him. The great thing to say about the Christian is that he is alive in Christ and that the life of Christ is in him. We are in the life of Christ. Christ's life. Jesus calls it eternal life, and he gives it as a gift. And there's so many verses we could talk about where Jesus, Jesus mentions this. Let me just give you a couple briefly. Jesus says in John 4, 14, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in, become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. John 10.10, Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. John 17.2, in the upper room, Jesus told the disciples, he says, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given, that God has given him eternal life to all who Jesus desires to give it to. So what does this new life look like? One, your mind is transformed. That you now, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.16, have the mind of Christ. That you start to think the way that Christ does. You start to see the world the way that Christ does. You begin to desire the word the way that Christ did. I remember one of my first Sundays here, I went to the Starbucks over there around the corner and I saw a young man named Mark McClam. Y'all know Mark McClam? 6.30 in the morning, I think Starbucks had just opened, Sunday morning, he's there reading his Bible. I started talking to him, he's like, yeah, I was, I was recently, recently saved, and I just can't get enough of this. What's going on? He's got the mind of Christ. Now his mind is set on spiritual things. Before, when we were slaves of our flesh and slaves of sin, secondly, we're now slaves of righteousness. We're now slaves of Christ. We desire to obey Him. We desire to be sanctified. Paul says in Romans 6.18, he says, And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. We are slaves of righteousness. And that means our, our heart's desire is to obey God. Our heart's desire is to obey the living God. Thomas Chalmers called it the expulsive power of a new affection, that you have a new affection to, to please and obey Christ. Our desires have completely been changed and transformed. I heard about a group of students, this is years ago, years and years ago. Uh, there was a mini revival at the Air Force Academy, and a lot of students came to know Christ. And... A lot of them then 
made a pact, and they said, hey, uh, they were subscribing from a certain magazine from Hugh Hefner, and they said, hey, we're going to all write him, and we're going to tell him that we need to unsubscribe from his magazine. And they all wrote separately, and they said, Mr. Hefner, I used to love your magazine, but now I don't, because now my life has been changed. I've got new affections, new desires. When I read this, I'm convicted of my sin. And they wrote him and said, I have to discontinue my subscription because I'm a Christian now. New affections, new desires. And then moreover, third, we produce good fruit. We naturally produce, Paul says in Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And let me add one more thing. You live with the assurance knowing that you will have eternal life in the future. Knowing that you will have eternal life in the future. Why? Because you have it now. You have it now. You know that you will escape the wrath of God and the judgment of God in the future because you have this eternal life now. How do you know that you won't be judged? How do you know that you're not going to go to hell? Well, because I have the eternal life. It's a present reality for me. So that's the third principle. The fourth is the exclusivity of Christ. The exclusivity of Christ. That Christ alone grants this new life to us. Look at verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. The Son has this life. And, and this doesn't mean that at one point the Son didn't have the power uh, to have this life. Some argue that, pointing, uh, trying to argue that Jesus is not divine. No, what this means is that the Father has always given the Son this authority as part of his deity to, to be able to grant this life. And when we understand verse 26, we really begin to understand Christ's mission here on this earth, that Jesus came on a life-giving mission. Here's the thing. The life that Jesus gives to you and to me and to many more millions and millions of people if he tarries to come is costly because it's a life we don't deserve. It's a life we don't deserve. What do we deserve? Death. We deserve death, and God is a just God, so God, we warrant death not to have this life now, and we warrant death in the future. But Jesus came to give life, and he knew it would come at a cost. And that's the reason for the cross and the resurrection, is his death was your death. You see it? It was substitution. His death on the cross was the penalty that you owed because of your sin. And God poured out on him the judgment that would take you forever to pay in hell. And on the cross, in those few hours, Jesus paid it. He said it's paid in full. And because he was perfect, the grave could not hold him. And he rose from the dead three days later. And, and the, the logic is then is that his resurrection is, is our resurrection. It's our new life that begins now spiritually and the resurrection that we will one day have physically. 
with a new body. Jesus says in John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. So the question then that we all must ask is do you have this life? Do you have it? Do you have the mind of Christ? Do you have the new affections? Do you have the fruit that is being produced, this spiritual fruit? All of these things flow out of this new life. Do you have this new life? And I know some, there's some of you here, I know in a crowd this big that don't have it, that you came in this morning and you realized, I'm like John Wesley on that boat. I'm dead. Nothing has worked out. I'm spiritually dead. Listen, hear the voice of the Lord, not my voice. Hear the voice of the Lord. Do not harden your heart. Believe on the Son of God, and you will be saved. That's how you know if you've been given life, is you believe in the Son of God. So believe. John says, 1 John 5, 12, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Believe in the Son of God. And this life begins for you today. Don't walk out of this room without this life. Your entire future depends upon it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this life that you've given. Wow, what, a, what an incredible life. This life of Christ, which is the hope of glory. That is the assurance that we have that we will not face the judgment. Believing simply in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we praise you that you secured this life for us, that you came on this rescue mission, not just to teach us how to live, though you did that, not just to model good piety, though you did that, but to secure our, our eternal life and salvation on the cross and in your resurrection. We praise you, Lord. We believe. We trust you with all of our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.